This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org ut. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. Tonight, we are going to spend an entire semester talking about love. We're going to spend an entire semester talking about love and, and be asking together each and every week, I mean, what is love? What do we mean when we use that word? Uh, what do we mean when we say that God loves us or that God is love? And then how do we then love other people? I mean, how do we become a people marked by love in all of our different relationships? And so we will look at all our different relationships. We will talk about our relationships with our roommates, with the, the people that we like, the people we don't like, our relationships with our friends and our enemies, our relationship with our parents, our relationship with our boyfriend or girlfriend, our dating relationships, and even one day our relationships with our spouses. We'll talk about all those relationships this semester through the lens of love. So that's our sermon series this semester, Learning to Love. And we begin tonight with the invitation to love. The invitation to love. So let me pray for us and for the teaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these, your words of love to us, the scriptures. So we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to, to light our hearts and our minds tonight, that we might love and delight in you more. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Uh, some of you know my wife, Emily, and my wife, Emily, loves rom-coms. And in particular, she loves rom-coms starring Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, of which there are two that I know of. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. And so the other day I asked her, I was like, Emily, do you have any other favorite movies like besides You've Got Mail and Sleepless in Seattle? And she was like, no, that's the list. So there you go. Um, and uh, for many years now, though, the movie critic Wesley Morris has been saying that the rom-com as a movie genre is essentially dead. That, that, that for many years now, the glory days of the rom-com have been gone, and we've been getting by with bad substitutes like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Uh, no offense to you, those of you who watch it. Uh, here's what Wesley Moore says. He says, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan karaoke together and When Harry Met Sally has become Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill dancing together on a rooftop to turn down for what? The rom-com is dead because romance is dead. That's an interesting statement. The rom-com is dead because romance is dead. And it's true. I mean, romance is dead. The marriage rate in America is at an all-time low. Fewer and fewer people are getting married than ever before. The birth rate in America is at its lowest point in 50 years. People are having fewer and fewer children. Recently, uh, the Pew Research study asked 18 to 29-year-olds, in other words, you, if they were interested in being in a committed relationship. And 60% of people said no. I mean, people today, we would rather, I mean, work fast-paced jobs and, and, and sort of travel all over the world and drink expensive cocktails and take pictures of them and eat at nice restaurants, and then maybe we'll get married when we're 33, and like maybe we'll have kids when we're 39. And the theologian Cornell West, he takes it one step further. He says that in our culture today, it's not just that we're choosing not to love, it's that we don't even know how. He says... America today, we suffer from the inability to love. 
America has become a joyless quest for pleasure, insatiable pleasure, endless, bottomless pleasure, and with it, the inability to really be committed to love. He says, it's like Dostoevsky's definition of hell. Hell is the inability to love. And so why would we spend a whole semester talking about love? That is why. Because we know nothing of love, and we've forgotten how to do it. And so tonight, we're invited back into the world of love in our passage, where we see that the same exact thing that has happened to us in America has happened to the church of Corinth. They've forgotten how to love. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to them to wake them up from their sleep and remind them and us of the only life that really matters, a life of love. So three points tonight. The priority of love, the definition of love, and then the power to love. So the priority of love, the definition of love, and then the power to love. First, the priority of love. So if I were to ask you at the beginning of this semester, what is the one thing you need most in your life right now? What would you say? It's sort of like when people say that uh, your house is burning down and you can only go back in and save one thing. And all of you were taught to say, I would save my Bible, but that's a lie. You'd all get your phones. Um, or it's like when you go backpacking and anything that you pack, you carry. And so it's the night before the backpacking trip and you're going through all your things and you're really asking, like, do I really need this? And I really need this? And I really need my hair dryer or whatever it is, right? And uh, you're saying, uh, no, I don't. I mean, again, it's forcing you to ask, what do I really need? And so what about this semester for you? I mean, what is the one thing that you most want or that you most need this semester? Paul says it is love. But not that other people love you, but actually that you love other people. Listen again to what he says. If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See, here's what's going on in Corinth. Corinth is like Las Vegas. Uh, It's known in the ancient world for two things. For money and for sex. And that's because, uh, first, it was an affluent city because it's a port city. It's surrounded on both sides by water. And so all the ships that are passing through the sea are forced to stop in Corinth. Uh, That's called a monopoly, and it's a very good thing, right? So they have a lot of money. But second, it was home to the temple of Aphrodite, who was the goddess of sex. And so every single night in Corinth, men would leave the city and they would stream up the hillside and have sex with temple prostitutes. That was every night in Corinth. Money and sex. But then the good news of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection for us comes to Corinth. And a church begins. And the church takes off. Uh, It's known to have some of the best preachers in the world, uh, including Apollos and Peter and then here Paul himself. It's known to have these really gifted people in the church and these really smart people. But over time, I mean, the church becomes a total mess because here's what begins to happen. 
At first, the church starts to uh, get self-righteous, and they look down on everyone outside of church. Uh, Some of you have heard about that before. Second, they just start dividing up into little cliques based on who their favorite preacher is. Uh, We don't know what that's like, but we know about cliques. And then they start segregating, and they don't let poor people eat the Lord's Supper with the rich people. So the rich people go in, and they take the Lord's Supper by themselves, and they get drunk off of all the wine. I mean, so Corinth is a mess. They're really gifted. They're really smart. They're powerful. They're rich. They're influential. But they know nothing of love. And so Paul here, we usually, we hear these words, this passage at weddings, right? We think of them as kind of sweet and sentimental and poetic. But that is not at all how the Corinthians would have heard these words. Because Paul here is mad. He's saying, yes, you're gifted. And yes, God loves you. And yes, he is with you. But you know nothing of love. I mean, look at what he says. He says, you can speak in the tongue of angels. You can be Apollos. You can be Peter. You can be Paul. You can be the best preacher or communicator in the world. You can have three million followers. You can be Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. And he says, you can have all faith so as to remove mountains. You can be spiritually disciplined. New Year, New Year's resolutions, wake up every morning, read your Bible for 30 minutes, pray four times a day, not drink, not smoke, not sex, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. And then he says, you can give away all that you have. You can be a quote-unquote selfless person. You can be the philanthropy chair of your sorority. You can go and work for a nonprofit after college, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. See, so many of us want to be loved, but we do not want to love. So how does this translate for students at UT? If I'm plan two, or business honors, or top of my class, or top of my major, but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I'm in the elite sorority or the elite fraternity, and if I have elite friends and get invited to go on the right spring break trip this semester and stay in the right house with the right people, but have not love, I'm nothing. And this semester, if I make all A's and I get the perfect internship for the summer, but I learn nothing of love, I've gained nothing. And this semester, if, if the perfect guy asks me out, or, or the perfect girl, I finally get her attention since she finally says yes, but I do not love, I've gained nothing. So many of us want to be loved, and that's why we chase all of these things. But we do not want to love ourselves. And so Paul is waking us up from our sleep. Look at the first verse. I will show you a still more excellent way. He's showing us a different way to live. It's the way of love. He says, love never ends. Your college years will pass away. Your physical beauty will pass away. Your gifted mind and your intellect will pass away. But love will remain. That's the priority of love. But let's ask now in point two, what is love? Let's look at the definition of love. So when we think of love, we usually think of it as something that we feel, right? Uh, Love is an emotion. It's a chemistry. It's a vibe or a mood. It's something that you feel. But for Paul, love here is an action. Love isn't something you feel. It's something you do. And we see this in verses 4 through 8 where Paul defines love for us. What does he say? He says, love is patient and kind. Patience and kindness are actions. 
Love does not envy or boast. Envying and boasting are actions. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Those are verbs. Those are actions. Love isn't something you feel. It's something you do. What about for you? Love is being patient with your roommate who never does the dishes and leaves their clothes all over the floor. Some of you are like, kind of uncomfortable. (laughs) Love is calling your parents on the weekends. The parents who, by the way, are probably paying for your college and would love to talk to you. Uh, love is not envying. Love is not being jealous of your friend when they get a higher test score than you or when they get the internship in New York that you wanted. Love is not boasting, he says. It's not boasting when you get the higher test score or when you get the internship and your friend is not. Love is action. It's concrete. It's not something you feel. It's something you do. And y'all, I want you to know it's something that you can do right now. Like, you can start right now, tonight. I mean, sometimes we think that love needs to be big. And that we need to go and do big things, or become missionaries, or go to China or something. Or go across the city, or whatever it is, to really love. No, love is something you can do right now. Small, mundane, ordinary things for the actual people in your actual life. So how might we... Here's another thing. You can love right now, and you do not have to wait until you feel loving either. See, this is one of the great lies. We think that it's inauthentic, we don't feel it. No, it's not something you feel, it's something you do. As C.S. Lewis says, in fact, one of the best ways to become a more loving person is to pretend like you already are. It's fake until you make it. And so if there's a person who really annoys you, you show kindness to them, even when you do not feel like loving. And over time, they don't really feel that annoying anymore. It's not something you feel, it's something you do. How do we summarize all that Paul says about love? What is the Bible's working definition of love? This is the definition we're going to use this semester. Love is giving up your life. For the good of the other. Love is giving up your life. It is emptying yourself for the good of another person. Love is saying, my life for yours. We go through life saying, your life for mine. Give me. Give me your love. Give me your attention. Give me your money. Give me your stuff. Give me your body. Jesus says, my life for yours. That's our definition. But here's the only problem for us. As inspiring as these words are, love for us is impossible. It's impossible. And that leads us to point three, the power to love. The power to love. Because if you look at Paul's words again in verses four through eight, they sort of read like a resume or a job description. Okay? They're describing a person. I mean, they're describing the ideal lover, someone who will be patient and kind and not envy and not boast and not be irritable and not be resentful and so on and so forth. And it's pretty inspiring to read these words and think, okay, like, I can do this, right? Like, I can do this. Uh, I can be kind. I can be patient. I mean, but, like, can you? I mean, can you? 
Like, here's some homework, okay? I want you to take this little resume, this little list of the ideal lover, take it home with you, and like, see how long tonight you can go without breaking any of these love rules, okay? Like, none of you will make it past like 9.15. And if you think you have, you're lying to yourself. I mean, y'all, love is so hard. As anyone who has ever tried it knows, it's so hard to love. It's easy to not love. There's no resistance. That's the flow of the world. That's the flow of college. As long as you're going with the flow, it's not that hard. What's hard is to try to love. It's impossible. And so that is why this passage tonight, it really isn't about the Corinthians and their lack of love, nor is it really about us, but it is about Jesus. Because I want you to listen again and read again these words and substitute the name of Jesus every time you see the word love, and it totally works. I mean, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus bears all things and endures all things. I mean, we think it's hard to bear with our roommate. Jesus bore the weight of every sin of every human. And he endured death and Satan. This passage is about Jesus. This is Jesus' resume we are reading. It is a description of him. He's the definition of love. And so if you want to love, you must know that the power to do it can only come from him. So how do you do it? How do you receive his power? Well, first, you simply receive his love for you. You do not try to bring your spiritual resume to the table and say, look, God, look how patient, kind, I'm whatever I've been, so love me. No. You just receive Jesus' love and goodness and kindness on your behalf. You delight in his love and you drink it straight. You don't try to mix it with your little accomplishments and your little efforts to be a nice person. You just take it straight. Christianity, it's all grace. And that's what makes it good news and not good advice. So first, if you want the the power to love, you just receive God's love on your behalf. But second, once you receive God's love, the good news of Christianity is then that not only do you receive his love, but you actually get to participate and be a part of his love for the world. God, it's like this. God is like a fountain. And every minute of every day, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are showering and pouring out love upon the world. That is what they are doing. And when you become a Christian, Jesus pursues you and he takes you and he plunges you into that fountain and into that stream. And you bathe in those waters and God's love washes away all of your sin. And it's a wonderful and beautiful thing. But then what do streams do? If you're plunged into a stream, what happens? Streams carry you along in their current. And so once you enter the current of God's love, it carries you along and it moves you with it towards other people and out into the world. 
You're plunged into the waters. That's a moment of your salvation. But then you're carried with the current and with God towards other people. So when you love, it's not actually you loving. It's God loving through you. You're being carried along in the current. That's where the power to love comes from. It will never come from within. It will never come from setting new New Year's resolutions. It will only ever come from the fountain and from the stream. But the great hope of Christianity is that it will. So here's the third and final good news, of, good news about love in this passage. And that is that one day, Jesus will so fill you with his life, and you will be, have been carried along in the stream long enough. And you will die, and you will look Jesus, who is love, in the face. That's what Paul says. Now we see in the mirror darkly. Then we will see face to face. We will see love in the face. And in that moment... You will have come to perfectly reflect Jesus' love. It will become the case that Jesus' love resume will have become entirely yours. And so we will, if you're in Christ, you should know that one day these words will become a perfect description of you. Okay? And you will have reached a point where you will have become perfectly patient and kind and so on and so forth. That's the good news of Christianity. You've received love. You're being carried along by love out into the world. One day you will stare love in the face and you'll be a perfect reflection of it. Let's close. So, uh, no offense to my wife or to Meg Ryan, but I like You've Got Mail and those different rom-coms, but like they're not really my thing, okay? And like I've told you all before, my favorite movie ever is this movie called The Tree of Life. How many of you have seen this movie? Raise your hand. Right, I'm going to keep talking about it. Uh, so it's called The Tree of Life, and it's about a mom and a dad who are raising children in Waco in the 1950s. And, and, and Brad Pitt plays the father, and Jessica Chastain plays the mother. And I've shared this illustration, I'm going to keep sharing it. Brad Pitt's the father, Jessica Chastain's the mother, and they're polar opposites. Brad Pitt knows nothing of love. He's mean to his kids. He's a workaholic. He's definitely got some Napoleonic syndrome. And he's moving out into the world, trying to get people to look at him and trying to earn people's love through his work and his accomplishments. And he knows nothing of love. And the end of the movie, he confesses this and he admits it. He says, I wanted to be a big man, but I'm nothing. That sounds like Paul. Look around. The birds and the trees, I dishonored it all, and I missed the glory. But Jessica Chastain is love. She knows the still more excellent way, and she, she knows the path of love. She hasn't tried to be big. She's lived in a small, hidden, obscure life as a mother, giving up her life for the good of her children, playing on the floor with them, making their breakfast, changing their diapers, playing outside with them. And at the end of the movie, unlike Brad Pitt, she has no regrets. She has no regrets. At the end of the movie, they're forced to move out of their home in Waco, this little home where Jessica Chastain has made thousands of breakfasts, and she's changed thousands of diapers, and she's died to herself day in and day out for years and years and years. And they're driving away, and she's looking through the rearview mirror as, as their little house gets smaller and smaller in the distance. And as she does, she says these words. 
The only way to be happy is to love. Unless you love, your life will flash by. And that is Paul tonight. Friends, the only way to be happy is to love. And unless you love, your semester will flash by, your college years will flash by, and your life will flash by. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that though we are unloving, you have loved us first in Jesus. And we do ask that you would plunge us more and more into the stream of your love, that we might know and taste and delight in your love for us, but then that you would carry us out in that stream into the world in love, Lord, that we may love the other people in this room and ultimately love the people of this university. Uh, Lord, thank you for my friends here tonight. It's good to see their faces again. And we do ask that you would be with us this semester. Through Christ's name, amen.